Hey there, welcome to Beyond the Bikini podcast, where you can enhance your body and your mind. My name is Nicole Ferrier, exercise science grad, certified personal trainer, bikini competitor, and coach. On this podcast, you will learn more about my experience in the fitness industry, competing in bikini competitions, mental health, and how to gain more success in your own life in your fitness journey. So sit back, relax, or power through this cardio session and enjoy. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Beyond the Bikini Radio. I'm excited for today's guest. I've been a long-term follower. It is Alan Aragon. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on, Nicole. It's a real pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. And I just saw your your reel of your flexible dieting <laughs> book, which, yeah. which definitely made me, made me laugh today. But Alan, why don't you take a chance to introduce yourself to your audience today? Yeah, well, I'm one of the old guard of the evidence-based movement in the fitness industry that probably started about 15 years ago. And so um, as of the last 10 years or so, my main role has been to uh, just conduct the research with my uh, science colleagues where we look at different questions about how to optimize uh, nutrient timing for improving body composition and um, athletic performance, so protein timing specifically. And I've also uh, done a bunch of research projects having to do with intermittent fasting, um, as well as kind of the range of uh, of diets out there from low carb to high carb, keto to everything in between. So basically my colleagues and I, we do the research and we put it out there to the public and we try to educate the professionals who in turn are able to educate and get their clients results. So that's me in a nutshell. Yeah. And one place that I saw you was PEC and, you know, doing a speaking event. I see you speak quite often. So definitely super passionate about the fitness space. Oh yeah. You know, everybody who showed up at PEC is, is a different animal actually from the normal person attending a, a fitness conference. I mean, I think that there's the highest ratio of competitors to like regular uh, general population folks that I've ever seen in a in a uh, a conference like that. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, very hardcore audience at the PEC, and it was really enjoyable too. Yeah, Alan, what like ignited your passion for the fitness space? Like, what got you into this? Um, what got me into it was um, kind of a hardwiring. I think I think everybody is interested in health and fitness if they just want to live a good life, but I kind of ended up pursuing it through just influence from my dad, who was into the lifting thing. And he was um, an amateur boxer way, way back. And uh, he just kind of gave, gave me a set of weights. My brother and I set of weights when we were little kids and we just kind of got hooked. And then Flex Magazine happened at some point in the, in the eighties. And, uh, and then you get drawn to these, these fantastical looking beings on the cover of muscle magazines and fitness magazines. And you go, Oh, wow, that's, that's incredible. I I would like to, you know, maybe someday achieve like something close to that. And so Mm -hmm. you just kind of, kind of go from there. So that's how I got interested in it. And um, sort of the rest is history. You know, I, I I tend to think everybody's into it, but not everybody pursues it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think it's getting more popular through social media. Um, there's a lot of information that can spread a lot faster. So I'm seeing like the most competitors ever at like competitions. Um, but with the spread of good information also comes the spread of bad information. So I also see that too, where maybe people are getting into fitness and it um, isn't the best experience because they go about it in more of the extreme way and then they kind of yeah. pull away from it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, it's a minefield, you know, and it's like the wild, wild west out there because I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. Um, and I think the problems start coming in when people claim to have the answers for stuff and they say, you know, this is definitely true and what we know rather than saying, hey, this is what I've observed and um, this is what I've seen work. So we can you can give it a shot. You know, I think there's a big difference between saying, OK, this is like the scientifically in quotes proven way to do things versus saying, hey, you know, this hasn't really been looked at in the scientific literature, but these are some observations in the field that I'm seeing consistent results with. And I think that as long as people put it that way, then the listeners can take that for what it is and, you know, you know, to make their own decisions about how cautious or adventurous they want to be with protocols they hear, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like experience is huge too, because there's so many times where there might not be a research study on something that you're implementing, but it's, it's worked from, you know, the people you've worked with in the years of experience. And it is hard, I would imagine to get like research in this space, right? It seems to be pretty niche. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, research dollars usually come from way up top, like government level, and um, sometimes at the level of the food industry, and then of course, level of the, the supplement industry. And uh, there's just not a whole lot of research dollars that are motivated towards, hey, how can we gain some more muscle beyond the norm, <laughs> beyond what's more healthy? Or how can we lose fat beyond what's healthy, you know, yeah. <laughs> healthy and, and normal and average? There's just not a lot of uh, research dollars allocated towards that. So um, in a lot of the space, we do have to depend on observations in the field and just listening to people who are pretty sound mentally and um, can give out some good advice based on their observations. Yeah. And so you mentioned gaining muscle and that's one topic we're going to be talking about today is gaining muscle, the reality behind gaining it. And one of my favorite terms that really stuck out to me at PEC was the term gain-taining. And yeah. you were saying like, oh, everybody wants to gain muscle, but not like lose their body composition that they feel comfortable in. And that really resonated with me because I felt like before all I've been taught is cutting, building, maintaining. And I'm like, well, I don't want to maintain, I want to build, but I don't want to gain way too much body fat, you know? And so why don't you kind of talk about that term gaintaining more, um, what it means and how people have implemented it? Well, gaintaining is something that um, can be done at a couple of different phases in, in your development. Like at the very beginning, like the first few years actually of folks development when they let's imagine they start lifting they start on their physique develop development journey in their let's say late teens or mid-teens mid to late teens i mean technically you should be trying to make some gains from your mid to late teens 
like clear into your late teens to, to early 20s, um, if you really want to take advantage of um, the potential for putting on muscle through your lifespan. You know, a lot of people just start dieting and cycling dieting phases with massing or bulking slash building phases right off the bat. And then they just kind of take one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back when they can implement this years long period of in quotes, gain taining. So at the start is one, one place where people can do the gain taining thing, which I'll explain more. And then the other part is when people are close to their ultimate goal or at their ultimate goal in terms of muscular development. And they want to just kind of journey forward and, and take a chance at putting on a little bit more muscle mass, but in a less sort of, well, admittedly less focused, but less stressful way that you can kind of live through that with a bunch of life distractions and a bunch of things that happen through life, but you're still kind of floating along like a, like a boat on the ocean, but you're still going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And so, so the gain-taining thing, if you can imagine perhaps putting on just a minimal amount of lean body mass per year. So, you know, even if you're, you're putting on something to the tune of two pounds, three pounds of lean body mass per year, and then you rack up four to five years of gain taining, then at the end of the rainbow, you know, you've, you've actually put on an appreciable amount of muscle mass, let's say 10, 12 pounds mm -hmm. at the end of like a four or five year period. And that's pretty spectacular. And if you think about it, um, now that that's, it's occurring to me, uh, a competitor named Doug Miller, uh, he is arguably one of the greatest, uh, bodybuilding competitors um, ever, you know, either in the natural or the enhanced scene. So Doug Miller took four years off a of competition and he was already considered, okay, he's the greatest natural bodybuilder ever. And then he came back after four years and he came back seven pounds heavier in terms of muscle. And because of those seven pounds, everybody just started assuming, oh, he's not natural anymore. Yeah, he, he, you know, he crossed, crossed over, you know, got implemented the, uh, the, the sports technology and, and here he is, but it was just seven pounds over the course of four years. And it, the, the man looked like he just gained tained in a perfect way to, to just kind of blow everybody away at the end of the rainbow. So it's pretty cool. I mean, the, now the, mechanics of gain taining like two to three pounds of lean mass gains per year is pretty much a focus on not dieting not cutting but focusing on um, performance and recovery so mm -hmm. when you put your focus on lifting performance lifting recovery and you're not consciously restricting or watching the scale or watching the calipers or watching the devices and um you know, gunning for just a very strict maintenance of leanness, then you can, in quotes, gain tame. So it, it is kind of a vague thing, Nicole, but the concept is there. Just slow and steady gains over a period of years where you keep excess body fat gains at bay. 
-hmm. And um, not everybody is in a position to do that. And not everybody is in a position to want to do that because there are some folks who need to look really lean at certain points for whatever occasion or event or competition. And so the, the gain tanning model isn't really in the cards for them. Yeah. I um, wanted to also bring up that with gain tanning, that it's kind of like just focusing on the basics and staying consistent with it because a lot of people make the mistake of only taking their fitness goals seriously, women in particular, when they're dieting. And so when they're dieting, that's when they're super adherent, they're tracking, they're training, hitting hitting everything. And then after that, it's kind of like, well, now I don't really have this goal. I'm just going to kind of do my old, my old, my own thing. Um, you have to be consistent. And it's also a really long, grueling process. Like I'm currently in like a year and a half away from stage. I'm taking all this year off too. And it's slow and gradual. And I know that it's going to be, but I also don't want to gain a whole, body, a, a whole lot of body fat either, which I feel like in the bodybuilding space can be really intimidating for a lot of females. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and I don't think anything can be called gain taining technically, unless it's a two year, roughly a two year period or more mm -hmm. where you just blocked out all of the dieting phases and you just decide to go on that slow, slow climb up. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it, but when people try it, they find their, their best intersection of um, getting work done in their lives, having a life and also making gains while not gaining excess body fat. So it's kind of a beautiful thing if you can pull it off. So, mm -hmm. so uh, you said you're a year and a half in. Yeah. A year and a half in, um, my weight just bounces like three pounds and I'm noticing gains, but it's not like crazy. I'm also a female. And I think a lot of women need to take into account that we gain muscle very slowly. Like if you think, oh, yeah. if you think it's going to happen fast, it doesn't. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's, it's such a tough road. It's like with men, um, just drawing some, just taking the existing data and, and putting together some real sort of simplified numbers on it. Men can gain 20 to 40 pounds of muscle above and beyond the average untrained male if everything goes right. So in the course of, a, of an entire training career, let's say five to 10 year training career, and let's face it, you know, if you have a 10 year training career where you're focused on physique development, I mean, you're, you're lucky, right? Because a lot of people have kind of this five-year window where they, let's say they don't have major job demands yet. They don't have kids yet, you know, and they're kind of at this point in their life, they have this window where they have this five-year focus. Um, but let's just say for the sake of illustration, you have this 10-year focus where you can um, develop your physique. Men, once again, 20 to 40 pounds, and I'm talking about natural natural uh, individuals, mm -hmm. 20 to 40 pounds is the potential that they can expect. And if you you know, look at a five to 10 year period, that's like, oh, what is it? Like five to eight pounds of muscle gain a year, roughly, okay, um, on average. So if you can imagine that women gain like maybe half of that 
like two thirds of it at, at most, then you're looking at very small amounts of muscle gain um, per year. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it is a frustrating thing. Like when we look at the potential for women, it's more like 15 ish to 25 ish pounds max that a woman can gain beyond the average untrained woman. So 15 to 25 pounds. And so that's when you really are looking at small numbers on an annual basis. If you're looking at a five to 10 year training career. And so as long as people know that, as long as people have it in their mind, okay, as a man, I can gain like 20 to 40 pounds above and beyond the average Joe who doesn't train. And, and a, as a woman, I can gain 10, possibly 20 pounds if I'm lucky and I do everything right above and beyond the average natural uh, uh, woman who, who doesn't train. And so mm -hmm. if you have those benchmarks, then you won't be so darn disappointed if you're doing everything right. And then in a given year, you gain like four or five pounds of muscle. Mm -hmm. that's actually quite a victory if you can do that as a woman. Yeah. Like I've heard this consistent thing where women will reach out saying, well, I, I build muscle easier. My legs bulk up really easy. And I think they're mixing up building muscle and, and gaining body fat. And there is a big difference between, between those two things. Um, when I hear a woman say I'm, I'm getting bulky too fast. I immediately think diet, you know, diet's got to be off. There's got to be something going on with their ratios, with their macros or calories, but there has to be an issue there because no one is gaining muscle easy. Now, do I see certain muscle groups more developed on certain women? Yeah, of course. You know, we've seen that genetic component where, you know, people have different shaped abs, their shoulders might be more prominent than their legs. There's going to be those variances, but I have yet to meet someone that gains muscle easily as a woman, especially a natural female, because I, I haven't seen it. And I've been in this space for a really long time. I started lifting when I was 17. I made plenty of mistakes with my nutrition. And I keep thinking, Nicole, you're still not bulky yet. You're still not big and jacked. And reality is, is a lot of women are probably making mistakes with their nutrition, but two, we just can't gain muscle fast. Yeah. Yeah. If you gain a pound of muscle a month, A, you're probably at the very beginning of your, of your training age. You're probably a newbie. Mm -hmm. And uh, B, you're doing everything right. And there's very little distractions in your life. There's no injuries happening. There's no kind of life events like, uh, you know, you get fired or you get divorced or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's a hard fought battle and people get deceived when like, for example, they've been dieting and, and restricting um, heavily and, and aggressively, or just for a very prolonged period of time. And then they switch over to a, a, a building phase, right? And so muscle can have the illusion of having the capability of coming back on, but they're just kind of rebounding back to baseline pretty quickly. And once you get back to that baseline, then, then the fight the fight begins. But if you're rebounding back to baseline with muscle and body fat, then it'll seem like, oh man, yeah, I put on muscle really mm -hmm. easily. But like you mentioned, okay, there's some body fat going on there. That's making it seem like more, more than, than what it is. Because when people complain about gaining muscle too easily, it's not just muscle that they're, they're complaining about. Yeah. Right? It is the body fat along there too. 
Yeah. Can we kind of touch upon like competitors to post-show and trying to maximize gains and how that's going to be hard to do if their body fat is still super low or they're like outside of their body fat set point? Yeah, definitely. So um, back in, I want to say 2010, 2012 or so, the concept of reverse dieting um, was kicked off. So like roughly 2010-ish. And the whole idea was um, post-competition, you were supposed to gradually reintroduce calories. Like each week, it would be a, a few grams or like, let's say five to 10 grams of um, protein and carbohydrate over the course of a few weeks. And then finally, after like two or three months, then you're finally back into your maintenance. And so that gradual increase in, um, I guess, recovery type nutrition was supposed to be a good thing. And the only time that that's a good thing, the only time you should go gradual after a competition is, I would say within the following week or two where you have the potential to do the post-contest binging. Mm -hmm. Um, once you can get past that, and if you graduate up and even take like within a week to do it, I think all the better, because the sooner you get back to maintenance levels, the sooner you get back to pre-dieting nutrient and calorie intake levels, the sooner you'll recover and the sooner that you can actually make gains. And so I don't like to see people draw out that recovery process and keep themselves in a calorie deficit for weeks and months after a competition. It's just not a good idea from a, a gain standpoint, from a recovery standpoint, and uh, even from a health standpoint. Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of like false information spread to specifically for like bikini competitors where they shouldn't weigh more than 10 pounds like post-show. And that's such a, a huge variance and such a broad statement. You know, someone that's five foot is a lot different than someone that's five nine. And so the weight that you need to gain, I feel like your body tells you when you're, you're healthy, you know, you get your satiety signals back, you get your menstrual cycle back, you start to feel more like yourself. Again, your personality kind of comes back a little bit more, less thoughts and preoccupied around like food is a huge one as well. And that's going to take time, but also like, don't set a certain body weight that you can gain post-show. Like I've had competitors that have to gain 15 pounds and I've had competitors that have to gain more than that. And that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, you know, with women, the, the negative aspects of um, prolonged dieting are potentially more profound than um, mm -hmm. what they are in men. And, and this is just from sort of the long-term outlook because roughly 80% of osteoporosis patients are women. And when women draw out these extreme dieting phases, it can impact their hormonal milieu and that can impact long-term, it can impact skeletal health. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that's something to really watch out for as a woman. Yeah. So if you want to gain muscle, you have to make sure that your body fat's in a good spot and, you know, be patient. I think that's kind of like the whole theme of this podcast is be patient. 
Um, mm. Another mistake I see too is trying to see visual changes with building muscle. Would you say that there's a, a good tool to monitor maybe body fat, muscle mass that you would recommend, or is it more so like you're going to, you know, stress yourself out over looking over the little things? You know, you, it's hard to see these changes that you can detect um, week to week, but uh, month to month is a much clearer picture. If you can do pictures and even just short video clips, you can tell. Mm -hmm. um, but like just focusing on week to week differences could potentially drive drive you a little nuts. Mm -hmm. um, and also the, the gaining process, uh, I think it's I think it's perfectly fine to have up to. I'm saying up to because it's not ideal to cross over that but up to a one-to-one -one ratio of lean and fat gain. So, I mean, that's gonna, a lot of people are gonna freak out about that idea, but I, I'll also admit that it is more ideal if for every pound of muscle that you put on, you gain only half a pound of fat, mm -hmm. okay? So that's more of like that two-to-one muscle to fat gain ratio. That that's a bit more ideal. And sure, there will be folks out there who just gain muscle and don't gain any fat in the process. And God bless them because they have God-tier genetics and they're very much in the tiny minority. But anywhere from a one-to-one -to, -one to two to one ratio of muscle to fat gain while you're massing up, it's perfectly fine. And I think people should welcome that uh, and embrace it. Yeah. So you talked about genetic freaks too. There are genetic freaks out there. You know, I'm sure we've all seen that one person that has a ton of muscle, their diets, maybe a mess or, you know, certain other things of their life just aren't matching. I used to see this a lot too. When I way back used to coach gymnastics, I would just have certain little athletes that like they, they got delts, they've got all these back muscles, and then I'd get someone that's built like a noodle. And so it's really interesting to see um, different genetic profiles and even young kids. And so can you touch upon, you know, maybe the genetic freak, and then also mm. talking about how even PEDs can really influence someone's muscle mass, because I know my audience doesn't know much about PEDs. Yeah, yeah, it's, First of all, the genetic component. Yeah, I, <laughs> the way that it's put is there's a such thing called the injustice of biology. And the injustice of biology is apparent in the spectrum of good genetics and just terrible genetics. And you can see this in training studies. Um, you can see this in stu training studies that, that look at body composition. Um, gosh, there's even some training studies that show people losing muscle mass by the end of a three-month period of resistance training. And you go like, wait, what? Oh, man, what happened with that person? You know, mm -hmm. either their genetics or their environment or both just really kind of bit them in the butt along the way. And, um, and then you see these genetic outliers who are like the, the, the kings of the jungle. And there's got to be you know, a few outliers in, in any department here, whether it's muscle gain or whether it's fat loss. And um, there is a huge spectrum of that. And just, just the mere idea that you can take a, a group of subjects and run a study, and then some people will actually lose muscle, 
a few people will lose muscle. And I do think that's partially a programming issue. Um, but the fact that they don't gain much muscle is still a testament to uh, the power of genetics. And I think that people have to understand, um, uh, like the people who win physique contests, who consistently win, I mean, at the national level and, and up, you would be hard pressed to not find a picture of them uh, in adolescence looking far more muscular than their friends or their cohorts at the same age. And so it is a thing where champions are born and they're not necessarily made, but um, it is possible to outwork your bad genetics and achieve great things. Mm -hmm. That's not impossible. But the people who are winning the contests at certain levels, at the professional level, at the national level, are typically a combination of great genetics and great work ethic. And that's just the, un that's just the injustice of biology there. Yeah. I think it's hard, you know, as a competitor, it's not really an even playing field because everybody's genetics is different, but you can't get your head caught up in that because you can't control it either. You know, mm -hmm. you can't control someone else's genetics. You can't control your own. So you might as well just give it your best effort. And, you know, I've seen people too, where they, they're like, oh, I really want to do bikini. And you look at their genetics and their shape and you're like, no, that's not for you. You know, maybe you should do wellness or maybe you should do figure. And it's like, yes, you can play with your genetics and train towards it, but you know, you can only do so much. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like for me, I've always been like a smaller build. I'm like, oh, I just like, it's so hard for me to gain, but I'm like, I'm just going to have to strategize a little bit differently, like take my time. And, um, you know, the people that are doing really well, you are right. You know, they have that athletic past or they just always looked so good, you know, their whole life and, you know, sucks. Cause it's like, everybody wishes that's them, but you, you can't change it. <laughs> yeah. You can look at everybody, everybody in the top 10 at the pro level. And you look at their adolescent, their pictures as a kid, even, and mm -hmm. you see, you know, you see the delts, you see the, you know, you see the, the traps, you see that. Yeah. They, every, everything is just far more developed and more apparent than anyone, anybody else their age. And, um, but, you know, the cool thing about um, women's competition is you've got so many divisions now, right? There's like mm -hmm. five different divisions that, that you can kind of target according to the uh, predisposition of, of your you know, genetic makeup. But I think you make a really good point that you can't just assume that, ah, my genetics are crap. So forget it. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like assuming that you're either a ectomorph, uh, a mesomorph or an endomorph when a lot of times it's like people's ectomorphism is due to their habits and, and how they react to their environment and just what their lifestyle is. You know, you can take almost any ecto and with enough dedication, you can make them look like a meso or an endo. And with, you know, with anybody along that continuum, true, there, there is a continuum of, of genetic strengths towards um, any one of those uh, physique archetypes, but you can't just assume right off the bat because there's a lot of folks who have looked like an ecto at some point in their lives 
and looked like an endo at some point in their lives, depending on what their habits and their reaction to their environment was on a, on a continual basis. So, yeah. so that's a good point you make about just not writing yourself off under the assumption that my genetics are X. So therefore forget it, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. People downplay like how important it is to like get all the stars aligned and basics. Like that is such a huge game changer. Even for myself in these past two years, I've noticed the most gains because I'm, I'm all in, you know, I'm not one foot in one foot out. I'm not waiting for my next diet or whatever it might be. You know, I'm really all in. And a lot of people are kind of wishy-washy with the process. And so it's easier to kind of identify with a certain label too of like, Oh, I'm just an ectomorph or I'm just an endomorph or it's not in the cards for me, but it's like, did you really give it your full go? You know, because you might prove yourself wrong. Oh, no doubt. And it comes, it comes down to some of the finer overlooked details, like getting seven to eight hours of sleep versus six to seven. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that can make a huge difference in people's recovery, their training performance, and even their appetite, you know, just getting an hour more sleep um, yeah. in, in the uh, pursuit of muscle gains can be a game changer for people. So if you're in this dedicated phase of gaining muscle, I'm just assuming right off the bat that you're, you've got your sleep covered. Mm -hmm. all, all the basics. And let's talk about like PEDs too. And like how that can even help a little bit for someone who might not have all the basics aligned, but also how it's not like a magic drug either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, PEDs kind of blow the, the ceiling off of people's potential, but it can also uncover, um, hyper responders to, um, to drug protocols. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what well, one really good example actually uh, is Kevin Lavrone. So Kevin, um, when he's not, he was not on the full regimen. Uh, he's walking around at like one seventy five, you know, one eighty maybe. But then once he gets on the full regimen, boom, two forty, two fifty, two sixty, and it's just like night and day. And so. Sometimes it's not necessarily a matter of um, anything more than just response, response capability or response potential to things. And some, and you would never know that uh, if the person never actually went on PEDs. And PEDs definitely, I mean, they increase muscle protein synthesis by a lot. Um, they obviously change the hormonal environment and they change people's capabilities and capacities for gains by gosh, 25, 50, close to, close to double, close to hundred percent in some cases. So it is a whole new world of magic that gets unlocked with that. Yeah. I've noticed a lot of re more resilience too, because I'll get questions on, you know, women reaching out to me asking how does so-and-so compete so much or how come she doesn't look like she's losing muscle or this or that. And it is hard to like have the conversation of, you know, we never know what goes on behind closed doors. I never want to claim anything, but a lot of people are enhanced at the pro level. And so they can look muscular year round. They can handle a lot more stage time and stage volume. Um, they also 
already have the amount of muscle that they need. Probably if they are a pro, you know, they're not having to gain, gain, gain for each and every single show. They're already there. So it's more so fine tuning at that point. So you have to understand that you can't compare again, genetics and all of that. You can't compare Mm -hmm. to someone else because the, the PEDs are already the cherry on top of the cupcake that was already perfect. Yes, no doubt about it. And these changes, even if somebody gets off of gear, they, they're sticking around. They're there. I mean, you can cause structural changes at the micro and macro level that are relative, relatively permanent, but definitely long-term. I'm talking for mm-hmm. years and years. And so just because somebody has been off for several years, that doesn't mean that they haven't kind of rebuilt their infrastructure and, and yeah. gotten that advantage. So there, there's also that. Yeah. And this isn't studied much either, right? It's just considered like not ethical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's very not, not legal <laughs> at all. Yeah. No way that you're going to get past the IRB boards with these protocols <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's always hard too. Cause everybody's like, well, what if, what if, but again, if you can't control it, then you just kind of got to do do you and also know the pros and cons if you do decide to cross that bridge um especially for women out there you know you got to make sure you're well aware of the risks too because it's not all sunshine and rainbows either yeah it certainly isn't and the changes a lot of times they are permanent and the permanent changes some people may or may not like Mm -hmm. um and some of the other concerns uh, have to do clinically with things like cardiovascular health and increasing risk for um, major cardiovascular events like heart attack. And, um, you know, that's kind of an area that people do take their chances with if they're not monitored very closely during these phases. Yeah, definitely. I'm hoping this podcast doesn't hear my cat meowing in the background. He's been (laughs) chiming in a handful. (laughs) I didn't even know that was a cat. I thought that was a child. <laughs> oh, really? I, I have him locked into my office and my cat's very um, talented. He can open up doors, but he's struggling with this one. So his paw keeps slipping off. He's getting mad at me. <laughs> he's talking to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He's very interested in the gains. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But I guess we can kind of summarize too. So building muscle is going to be a slow process and mm-hmm. whoever's listening, like you're not broken. If you feel like it, it's moving at a snail's pace, right? Yes. Yes. No doubt about it. It's so slow. I mean, honestly, think of like, <laughs> now I know that that's a cat I'm cracking up. <laughs> I'm talking 10 to 20 pounds over a lifetime training career. So if you do the math on that per month, it's, gosh, it's so minuscule. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Alan can see my cat probably opening that door too with those little free handles. <laughs> I will say when I first um, had had him, because he was like my, my husband's cat at the time, middle of the night, my first night with him, he opened the door in the middle of the night when I was sleeping and it scared the crap out of me. I thought my house was haunted. <laughs> oh, man. That is so cool. <laughs> but so he, he's, he's got the door open. He's got it cracked yeah, open. He totally just walked out by himself. So, wow. 
That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to building muscle, um, it is going to be a slow process. So if you're working with a coach, yeah. mm -hmm. if you're on social media, mm -hmm. really make sure that you aren't setting timelines, that you're committed to the process. Dieting is always going to be there too, but understand that that can also set you back if your long-term goal is to add on a lot of mass um, and, and just be patient. I always say the patience muscle is the hardest muscle mm. to train. <laughs> Absolutely. Be patient and be okay with gaining some body fat along with the muscle. You know, yeah. if you gain a half a pound of, of fat for every pound of muscle you gain, frankly, you're doing real good. Yeah, definitely. Alan, where can people find you if they're wanting to get in touch? Uh, you can just go to alanaragon.com. That's where all my stuff is. That's where you know, my books and my research review, all of that stuff, you know, my, my products, that's where you can find them. And on social media, my handle is at the Alan Aragon. So my biggest platform is Instagram. Perfect. Well, for anyone who's wanting to follow Alan or check him out more, you can always check out the description down below. And thank you again. Thank you so much, Nicole. Here on Beyond the Bikini, we talk a lot about training and nutrition. Trust me, it can be challenging to hit your fitness goals on your own. There is so much out there when it comes to working out, hitting your nutrition, and finding the plan that's right for you and your goals. Now, one thing that can make that a lot easier is hiring a coach and getting support towards your goals. I'm happy to say that I do offer online health and fitness coaching. I have plans that vary from support with training and nutrition and just your nutrition, and I even offer challenges throughout the year. If that sounds like something you're interested in, make sure you check out that description box down below. You can also find more details on my coaching services at NicoleFerrierFitness.com or even on Instagram at Nicole Ferry Fitness. All right, now back to the episode.